Hi everyone, I'm Les. And I'm Ashley. And you're listening to Anthropotamus, where we explore some of your favorite anthropology topics. Hey everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Anthropotamus. We're here with Dr. Yamuru Nurat from Istanbul Bedgi University. Uh, She is part of the Department of Sociology in Turkey. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So today we're discussing your article that recently came out this year, Linguistic Taboo, Ideology and Erasures, Reproducing Homophobia as Norm and Lesbianism as Stigma in Women's Football in Turkey. And I have to say to the Americans, we are talking about soccer, not American football. (laughs) That's right. But before we get into the article, can you tell us and the listeners a bit about your background and what led you to write about the linguistic taboos and homophobia in football? Um, sure. Um, so my background is in sociology and anthropology. I did my BA in sociology here in uh, Istanbul at uh, Boğaziçi University. And then I moved to the States for a little bit where I did an MA and a PhD in anthropology at Brown. Um, and that's when actually I started to work on football, not during my MA, but during my PhD. But then I was working on men's football and I was looking at the concept of fairness and fair play. Um, That was my main question. I wanted to understand how different actors within the side of football um, negotiate um, the concept of fairness, what they understand to be fair, and how those understandings come in conversation with this um, ideal of fair play uh, that exists on paper with its rules and things. Um, So that's when uh, I I grew up as a football fan as well. So I got to work on something that I liked and um, that's how I started to work on football. Then after years, many years, I was invited to a workshop in in Qatar. Um, As you know, uh, they are the host of the Men's World Cup this year. Um, So about two years ago, maybe three, right before the pandemic, uh, Georgetown, uh, Qatar organized um, a series of workshops um, actually on football in the Middle East. And I was invited to talk about women's football, which I hadn't really researched up until that point. I had a little bit, but not um, not, um, not very well. So uh, to be in that workshop, I was supposed to arrive first with some questions as to what were pertinent things to look at in relation to women's football. And then I was supposed to go, go off and do that research and, um, and come back and write about it. So it was this really kind of comprehensive package of a, of a workshop. And that's really how I started to um, look into uh, women's football, um, which led to this article and, uh, and some other work um, that I did on trivialization, labor exploitation, um, uh, again, in, in women's football. In the beginning article, you mentioned the Istanbul Convention. Um, before we get into the actual linguistics of it, because I'm not familiar too much with, unless we're talking about, you know, the Neolithic Near East, I am not familiar with Turkey <laughs> and the politics. So um, can you explain, um, for those of us who are not familiar with the current political climate in Turkey, can you discuss the government's reason for withdrawing from the Istanbul Convention? And what, what exactly was the Istanbul Convention? Sure. So the longer name is the Council of Europe Convention on Preventing and Combating Violence Against Women and Domestic Violence. The reason why it's called the Istanbul Convention is because it was open for signature in Istanbul in 2011. 
And it's really ironic that Turkey was the first to ratify this convention in 2012 and the first and only uh, party to pull out in 2021. Um, so it's been a, a major uh, point of struggle for feminists in Turkey to... Um, to kind of fight against withdrawing from this convention because basically it, um, it, it introduced a set of um, rules, laws um, that could be pursued, that could be consulted in, in cases of domestic violence. And Turkey is a place where femicides are um, still to this day uh, one of the m most important social problems. Um, I looked up some numbers, um, um, uh, which, you know, numbers aren't always telling, but in this case, I think they are. Um, in 2021, 425 women were killed. And just, um, and in 2022, until today, 337 women were killed. So that's more than one woman a day, um, cis and trans, um, that are uh, being killed, um, sometimes uh, with domestic violence, uh, other times in, in different um, arenas. So this convention was really, really key for civil society organizations, for lawyers, for for feminists, for the society in general, to have a tool to be able to um, fight these cases, to pursue these cases. Um, um, so the government withdrew. Um, the reason they put forth was that national laws were enough to protect women, which clearly isn't the case, as you can tell from these numbers. Um, and it was basically posited as this device that allegedly um, advocated um, homosexuality or it, it, it made people want to be homosexuals or something to that effect. Um, and it sounds, yeah, it sounds laughable, but it's it, the, this reasoning, and it was supposed to be against um, family values. So this juxtaposition of um, homosexuality versus family, again, as laughable as it is, is, um, is, uh, is common across um, kind of right-wing populist fascist regimes right now. Um, Poland was discussing uh, pulling out with a very similar justification and they wanted to replace it with a quote family-based treaty. Um, Hungary, if I'm not wrong, was never a signatory, neither was Bulgaria, but they, the conversations in these places, I know because we organized a panel before we pulled out, we organized a panel with representatives, feminists from Hungary and Bulgaria and Poland to discuss the situation in these countries and some of the justifications of the government or the, the reason why they were against it or they weren't signatories or planning to pull out were very, very similar to one another. And it's not just in Europe. We see uh, this um, hatred um, against uh, queer communities with the justification that they threaten um, kind of social, like family values or uh, whatever, um, um, or things like that. We see that in, in multiple places around the world. Um, so yeah, so that was, that was the kind of populist um, discourse that was being pre pre presented and 
it's still it's still going on like this discourse hasn't vanished even though they pulled out we withdrew as a country the discourse hasn't vanished in fact it's getting stronger and stronger uh, people are organizing rallies family value rallies against homosexuality um, and there is rising um, homophobia i would say uh, all around the, con- the country yeah Well, I feel like that is a whole nother episode we can create <laughs> off of that. Yeah. So this article, we focus on, you know, the term short hair and mm-hmm. wannabe. Mm-hmm. Um, can you describe to the listeners uh, what these terms mean and how are they used to erase homosexual identity in football? Sure. Um, so I discuss these terms, short haired and wannabe, as kinds of, as, as linguistic maneuvers that erase um, lesbian existence. Um, um, because it is, along with the word lesbian, um, is taboo, right? So lesbianism is taboo, and that translates to lesbian itself as a word being taboo, and, and that being kind of erased and replaced with these with these two words, short-haired and, and wannabe. And I, I, I do want to note, and I, and, I, and I say this in the article too, I don't mean to glorify a kind of embracing of the word lesbian um, to identify oneself, but I do want to highlight that in the context that I studied, the reason why it was absent wasn't because people were clinging to Uh, more freeing or fluid identities, it was simply because it was um, taboo, right? So it wasn't a choice, and, and I do want to highlight that. Um, so I've, I, I kept finding uh, in, in, in um, talking to footballers, to women footballers, that um, people would be denied spots on teams, on Um, on, on club teams as well as uh, the national team for being short-haired. Um, I would hear references to, quote, uh, weird, weird people, weirdos, or um, that were, quote, short-haired. Um, and, and, and my interlocutors would, would juxtapose Um, these uh, women to quote normal women so it kept coming up and um, and the description was of this uh, of this woman who wasn't who was clearly not ideal who was clearly not not normative um, but the word that was being used was short haired and it wasn't so much women with short hair it was as if this um, uh, phrase Uh, had stuck as short-haired to 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 connote some something else. Um, so of course it has to do with um, uh, normative femininity and its ideals, its aesthetic ideals. Uh, but it did become a way to describe um, homosexuality, lesbianism, without uttering the word lesbian. Um, so they were basically jumping from non-normative femininity to lesbianism and the vehicle for them to be able to do that was hair they kept referencing hair um, and and they had grounds for that too because again people were being discriminated on the basis of the length of their hair <laughs> so that was a real thing that people were experiencing so so it, it contributed to this phrase being stuck as such so that's the short-haired 
a bit. Um, and then wannabe, um, that was a little, a little bit different. This is when um, coaches, but also players, would describe um, um, women, some women players, as not really lesbian, but as um, wannabe manly. So they were under the impression that some women um, adopted a kind of butch appearance because they associated football with men. Um, and that association led them to want to appear like men, which of course, uh, again, has to do with the very limited um, idea as to what a woman should look like. So that's why they appeared the way that they did, not because um, they were actually lesbians. So um, like someone told me, this, this has to be in the article, someone told me, oh yes, you know, this is what they're doing now, but ultimately they'll, they'll all be mothers. Um, so a kind, like kind of um, identifying motherhood, which of course they meant like getting into a heterosexual marriage union uh, with a man and, um, and, 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 and reproducing within that union. So they identified that as the ultimate kind of like endpoint uh, for, for, for any woman in question. So anything that didn't seem to fit with that trajectory just seemed like um, uh, like them wanting to be something that they really weren't. It, it just closed off and closed off entirely the conceptual possibility of being uh, of being lesbian. Um, or I would be told, for instance, that they come from, quote, crooked families and they, they don't find enough love growing up. So they hang on to their teammates um, and that's why they appear lesbian. But in fact, um, they're not. It's only because they have some kind of emotional problem that, that makes them look like that. And once that's resolved, they'll just go back to being, quote, normal. So that's also something that I heard, which, again, of course... Um, deletes, erases, uh, and and obscures completely um, somebody's identity. Um, you know their their orientation, whatever their their whole position. There's their subjectivity. Yeah. So if homosexuality is common in football and they're being denied access, how common is it for? teams to find players so um it's funny because this also came up i think i i this this has to be in the article as well um at one point so in the article i talk about how once some of my interlocutors realized that i wasn't homophobic then they started to use the word lesbian more freely because the assumption the norm is is to be homophobic um, so once they realized that, you know, they could um, say certain things, um, then things eased up a little bit more. And that's when one of the coaches told me, if I didn't want to recruit uh, lesbian players, I just wouldn't have anybody. There, there are so, so, so many players are lesbian. Um, so, and then he said, 
um, um, I just I don't care what they do as long as they don't bring it um, to the club, like to the whatever, like to the, to the premises of the club. And he equated it to other, quote, bad habits like smoking. He was like, I know some of them smoke as well. I just don't want to see it. Um, so there is, there is a, a denial, right, of, um, of, uh, of the existence of lesbian players, uh, a kind of um, acknowledgement only when they f when the person feels a little bit licensed to be able to acknowledge acknowledge that, uh, but also the denial goes hand in hand with this understanding of wannabe. So he, even though he said this, he kept still. This is the same person who said, "Oh, they they're just pretending, or or, or they'll get over it," that kind of thing. Um, so it's a taboo and. Um, nobody can be in an in an out kind of relationship uh, but as long as it's not talked about as long as it's not uh, acknowledged um, then people are willing to overlook it as well because that's exactly what they want to do anyway that's because they they just want to uh, ignore it so or let's before i move on do you have any questions well, more of a comment, just mm -hmm. um, growing up in, uh, in Sacramento mm -hmm. uh, on, the, on the west coast of the United States, we've had a, a fairly liberal background out here, mm -hmm. uh, but I grew up in a household that was um, very much, I would say, homophobic, um, mm -hmm. and, and I say that because of certain family members and the way they would speak about um about being gay or lesbian or anything like that uh, and i even had you know a couple of members in the family who were gay or lesbian mm -hmm. and the way they were talked about when they're out of earshot it was very telling um but in public or when when the adults with air quotes were speaking around the kids, like I said, growing up, that or the idea of erasure it it was there when others were around, but if it was just around the family, they were very very openly disparaging, and it just makes me wonder, um, or not not makes me wonder, but I, I just see a lot of similarities in the way that. Um, I think that it was discussed in family life as to how it's discussed over in Turkey at this point in time. Hmm. Like they're they're going through a lot of this, uh, a lot of similar stuff that you that I would have seen ten, fifteen years ago out here. Yeah, and and a lot of this, a lot of this, really, you have to read like within the the the, the political conjuncture that I that I explained also when I say that it's that it's normative to be homophobic, it is taking place within this space that openly, where like the political, where, where, where political leaders can openly condemn um, uh, queer people in their lives and their practices. And it, and, and, and it just, and, and it just goes. Um, so it's, it, it's that kind of a, that's that kind of a conjuncture also that we're speaking from within. I think, too, we got to consider since California is so liberal, other states are still pretty, I don't want to, I guess, behind. 
Uh, uh, I don't think... Hashtag Florida. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, di- I didn't mean to uh, to infer that um, they were behind us by 15 years or anything. I was just ma- draw- drawing connections between the um, the way that people spoke about it there and the way they speak yeah. about it uh, yeah. in, in the past. Yeah. And it, mm-hmm. I, I do think that if we looked into the uh, the political climate back 15, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was more acceptable to to be openly homophobic. I almost feel like in history, it's a cycle where societies are more welcoming to it and then closed off to it. Um, I mean, think about Greece and Rome and homosexuality back then. Um, Yeah, you got a point there. Well, if that's the case, I'm ready for this phase of the cycle to be (laughs) over. (laughs) So we discuss, we discuss how women are supposed to appear a certain way um, so they aren't identified as lesbian. Mm -hmm. But what happens when you're like what we would call a tomboy Mm -hmm. and you just happen to be, I don't know, what term would I use, boyish? I don't know. Mm -hmm. What would Mm -hmm. you consider masculine traits, but you're really Mm -hmm. not lesbian? How Are you still Mm -hmm. expected to change your appearance? Um, yeah, I mean, I found, so, uh, I think that, um, m- m- I honestly don't know that if this, um, this rule has changed now, but it was an explicit rule when I was doing this research, like it, and it was right before the pandemic. So I, I was able to do it until the lockdown. So, and then some things in, in football in Turkey did change afterwards. Coaches changed and a lot, a lot um, depends on coaches. Um, so I don't know if this is as explicit today, but when I was doing the research, women were told explicitly to grow out their hair. Um, so if you were, as you said, if you were, um, a tomboy, or if you just wanted to keep your hair short, I don't know, for whatever reason, um, you could be told to have long hair, to, um, to appear more like what a normative woman is imagined to look like. And this is a strategy that is pursued, um, by people who, engage in gendered like heavily gendered spaces if their gender identity expression doesn't fit with that kind with the way it is heavily gendered so what i mean is um the other the 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 little bit of work that i did with um women playing football um some years back and i and they weren't actually footballers but it was an amateur tournament and i did some interviews with players participants even them even though they weren't footballers were really invested in trying to prove and i mean that with like scare quotes like prove that they were women despite playing football so it is so heavily masculine and i know that's not the case in the states and it's really great actually that um that you both know what soccer or football looks like in the states because a lot of people assume that it's this manly 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 space everywhere around the world and it's not um but anyway so since that is the case here most fans are men and most players are men most commentators and journalists and administrators and scholars even are men uh, when women enter this space 
um, they pursue certain strategies. One of them is emphasize femininity. They want to prove that they are women. And of course, that again, that definition of woman is very, very limited when they try to prove that. So that like with long hair, perfume, makeup, whatever, things like that. Um, and, 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 and so the short answer is yes, because the pressure is there and it's on all players, basically. Um, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you think that the emphasis on, um, body appearance is more important to them than the, uh, actual fact of them being lesbian? Um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that isn't to say that they would tolerate um, a, a lesbian relationship uh, in their clubs or across clubs. Um, but as long as people look feminine, uh, a lot of people are, uh, are happy. They're, they, they don't experience the same kind of anxiety. Um, which is the, the reason why a lot of times homophobic slurs are used uh, when confronted with non-normative uh, gender expressions. Uh, the idea is to, um, um, to dismiss, to be degrading against the non-normative expression, appearance, uh, rather than um, actually um infer that somebody is homosexual um i think people are really anxious they experience a lot of anxiety over those kinds of non-normative appearances yeah so it seems like they have kind of a don't ask don't tell yeah uh, rule in their society yeah 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 exactly see discuss a bit about the difference in the culture in basketball um and that how it's perceived as uh, higher class in comparison to football. Can you explain why, explain this viewpoint? Sure. I don't dig into that too much in the article. You're right. So it is seen and it is actually a higher class um, sport um, in Turkey. Um, as you know, as Bourdieu famously explains, sport, different sports are associated with different ha like habituses and those different habituses index social class. It's a part of understanding social class. And football is a working class activity, not just in Turkey, but in a lot of places in the world. Um, it arrived um, in Turkey with English um, soldiers coming into play and it was England um, dis disseminating this sport to a lot of places, not just, not just Turkey. Um, and, and it is a working class uh, sport. Um, a lot of times people account for this as uh, being very easy to um um to play like the reason why it's still like that people say it's because it's very easy to play you can just set up uh, like you can just put down two pieces of um soda cans or rocks or whatever and consider them to be um a goal uh, to 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 like um put together a, a goal post and then you can kick around whatever and and there and, and there you have a a pitch uh, whereas other sports require more infrastructure 
and um, you know other kinds of devices and things um, so that's one way that that's explained um, but basketball in Turkey yes it is an upper middle class sport it's an upper middle class pastime also so if you think about stadium goers or um, fans supporters of these different um, um, sports then yes there is a class dimension what's interesting and i don't go into it too much is the gendered implications of these different class affiliations um, because the person like that i quote my interlocutor nargis she talks about how um, lesbian women in basketball are educated in their upper class and that gives them gives them the skill to um cover almost or to um to know how to kind of navigate being lesbian whereas lesbians in football she says are uneducated and they're lower class and so they don't know how to manage it which which is um which is really super interesting. And again, I don't go into it too much in the, in the article. Um, the fact that the, what, what she says about uh, women footballers being uneducated is not true. A lot of women footballers uh, uh, go to university and get physical education degrees simply because playing football, they can't pay the bills playing football. They have to um, become physical education teachers or fitness coaches. So they have education, like if education is... Is, is, is measured with formal education. Uh, they don't lack that. Uh, but it's funny because I think that what she's doing is she's equating a kind of, again, butch appearance with being lower class. So like having a, a, maybe like a hyper butch appearance with being lower class, which has been written about in literature on... Uh, lesbianism in Turkey, this kind of fracture within the lesbian community um, by class, uh, whereby there will be different classes associated with different ways of being lesbian and, and, and there will be ways of othering within the lesbian community. So I, I allude to that a little bit, but I don't go into it too much simply because I don't have um, the data that I would need to delve deeper into it but i'll say one more thing actually volleyball volleyball is a very interesting space to look um, along these lines because volleyball in turkey is typically a women's sport but it's a sport where you have uh, uh, players uh, going off getting married having babies coming back so experiencing this like super normative hetero um, trajectory uh, but being able to come back and play volleyball afterward which in football isn't the case um, there was I think one mother when I was doing the interviews uh, in the whole league and uh, and she was in Turkish um, so typically women would if they wanted to get married or have children they would just quit playing football and that's that was that's not the case in volleyball they come back and they continue to play it is also a place uh, where there are out players um, and uh, they do uh, support um, non-normative um, feminine aesthetics. 
So volleyball is this very interesting place. On the one hand, it opens up space for non-normative expressions. On the other hand, it reinforces this trajectory of motherhood and it's becoming more and more popular uh, because the women's team in Turkey is becoming more and more successful. Um, Class-wise, again, it is a more upper-class sport. Um, so yeah, so there's stuff to look into there, how that's possible and how it is not possible in football and how how class figures into making uh, some things possible and other things not. So I have a related question, and it's um, specifically about the uh, short-hairedness and, and things like that. Do you think that is an expression of counterculture as far as um, the public ideal being directly opposed to that uh, and and why the um, the general pu- – or not general public, but rather the um, – the football players in in general are using that to express their uh, lesbianism. In do you, do you think that that they're doing that almost in opposition to the the erasure and the terming of short hairedness? Yeah, that's a tough one. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not it's sure. Okay. I'm not sure because that entails like to say yes to that entails. Um, assuming that they are making these fully conscious, agentive, intentional decisions, connecting everything that is described to their hair, um, which on some level might be the case. Um, like on some level, they might be thinking, okay, screw this. Like, oh, there is there's that story that I write in the um, that I write in the article. Like this woman who was told to cut their, um, to grow out her hair, and she would get uh-huh. an iPhone uh-huh. um, uh, because of it, like thanks to it, and she did, and she got the phone, and then she cut her hair. So that's really sticking it in their faces, right? Saying. Yeah, I, I will abuse uh, this uh, ridiculous uh, policy that you have and I'll get out of it um, kind of um, a phone. <laughs> so it's a real subversion. So in that case, yes, I mean, there's definitely agency and intention, but I don't know that um, that level of um, kind of deliberate um, calculation can uh, represent everyone okay that's that that's a that's a fair response i was <laughs> sorry for springing that one on you it, just, oh, no it problem. was something that occurred to me uh, no problem no problem at all <laughs> so okay so this is a rather taboo topic so how difficult was it to get people to actually interview with and then to get them to trust you enough to discuss the topic Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's also, that's a great question. Um, so I would start the interviews usually with like structural problems, which there were so many of, right? There isn't enough support. There aren't enough resources. There, the wages are very low. Um, uh, so just so many problems, like infrastructural problems, support problems, um, just basic or basic labor exploitation issues. And they'd be really passionate to describe describe all of this. Um, so once we would, once we'd, you know, get to know each other better talking about all of these things, um, then we would move into 
uh, more difficult subjects. And it would usually be like, if, if, if I was able, and I was with, with, with some of them, with several of them, to meet with them more than once, right? So, so that also helped. Um, so we would have already talked about problems and they'd already, they, they, they would have started to complain about how uh, frustrating it is to be doing this. And that kind of frustration, they would begin to include other topics like what I discuss here. Um, so it would take uh, multiple meetings sometimes for them to open up. Sometimes, um, again, they would be so um, convinced that, uh, that I too would be homophobic that they would start it there. So they would start talking about it as a problem of uh, football. And then th that would allow us to begin talking about sexuality. And then, and then slowly we would be able to sometimes turn that conversation around when I would ask, for instance, well, don't you think that this kind of intervention into people's lives, what do you think about it? Do you think that that's problematic? And then the conversation might turn around. Another thing that, was, that I was able to do is the league, the women's league was shut between the years 2003 and 2006. I talk about this in the article. And the reason it was shut, is, this has been written in, in, in the literature too, the reason it was shut was because the federation was convinced that football encourages lesbianism. And so I would ask them, oh, there was a suspension of the league. Do you remember that? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And then that, that might um, get us to talk about sexuality. Um, but some people did refuse. I mean, uh, if I was referred by a mate, by a teammate, they'd be more willing. Uh, they'd trust me more and they'd be more willing because, because they trusted their mate. But if it was a contact that I received from, I don't know, uh, like, like twice removed or three times removed, they would, they might refuse. Um, um, and 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 in those cases, I didn't, I didn't push. Um, yeah, and uh, and the, the usual things, of course, with any any kind of research that you do, anonymity, um, consent, um, and I and I made sure to 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 not mention their teams or, you know, any other thing that might identify them. Um, and, 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 I, and I told them as much, of course. Uh, but there was a lot of hedging. There was a lot of covert references. And again, this is in the article. Even though I do think that they trusted me to some extent because I'm a, because I'm a woman, I don't know, because I'm older than them, um, because I'm an academic and they kind of had um, like some of them did have respect for like academic pursuit I could tell so that kind of established um, me as legit and um, but even in those cases um, they were very secretive and 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 even when they did talk about it it was very covert very um a lot of hedging, a lot of stopping, a lot of reluctance. It, it, it didn't flow like um, uh, as freely as some of the other uh, conversations did. So what, are, what do you plan on researching next? Um, so I have three things going on right now. I'm in a project, in a EU-funded project on um, 
the social inclusion of African athletes in Europe. It's a multi-party project with different um, um, researchers from uh, around Europe. And the idea is to devise a toolkit to basically better the lives of um, African mig uh, football migrants, uh, men and women that come into Europe uh, with uh, with hopes and dreams of, of making it. Uh, a lot of times there is a lot of um, discrimination against them, racism, um, and so we're looking into finding out more about their migration experiences and to, as I said, hopefully come up with um, uh, some sort of toolkit to disseminate to clubs, federations, agents, managers, um, uh, to be able to overcome that. So that's one thing that I'm doing. I'm just a part of like a huge team there. It's not my own project. Um, one thing that I'm doing alone by myself is something completely unrelated to um, um, football. But I began talking about how the thing that I looked into uh, in football at first was fair play, fairness. I'm really intrigued by this um, concept of fairness and I situate that intrigue within the anthropology of ethics and morality. Um, so I'm working also on plagiarism and fraud in higher education, like undergraduates buying papers from their, their like classmates or agencies um, and then submitting them as their own. So I did a whole bunch of interviews with um, alumni um, looking into how they talk about these fraudulent activities, the class background of people writing and, uh, and, and, and buying and the differences there, that kind of. So I'm writing that up. That's, that's, that's something that I'm doing. And finally, something that I just started, uh, which is more the answer to your question, like what's next? Uh, I started to work with um, yoga teachers um, in Istanbul, here in Istanbul, with a, again with a question around ethics. I'm wondering how yoga teachers that kind of preach a kind of um, yogic ethics um, in their classes, how they reconcile those ethics with the ethics of their own consumption, is particularly in relation to uh, clothes, textiles, and food. Um, so simple things like if they eat uh, meat and if they shop at um, kind of global giants, which we know abuse children's labor, how do they come to terms with that when they talk about nonviolence in class? So I'm, I'm looking into um, those moments of negotiation. Well, thank you again for being on the show. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, it's my pleasure. And to our listeners, you can find us on our new website, www.anthropotamus.com. Thank you all for listening. Distribution of Anthropotamus is in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Please continue to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Anthropotamus for our latest episodes, show notes, and book discussion schedule.